Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world. And today I have got a sports person here with you. Now, uh, I shouldn't really say this, but you know, if I were to compare football with rugby, my preference has always been towards rugby. So, you know, it's a huge pleasure, really, huge honour to have a former England rugby player with us and a Leicester Tigers. Leicester Tigers are like one of the top rugby teams. It's a shame that they're based in Leicester. I'd rather they be based in my city so I could be even more proud. But hey, here we are where we are. Leon, it's really, really good to see you. Thanks for having me on. And also thanks for introducing me as, a, as an athlete, as a player, <laughs> because I've not been called that for a long time. So I'm, I'm taking that. I'm taking that. Well, listen, Leon, uh, my days of being an athlete are long behind me. So it's always good to speak to anybody who is fitter than I am. And therefore, they're always an athlete. But you'll always be an athlete. I mean... You spent, uh, how many years did you spend at Leicester Tigers? Yeah, I signed there when I was a youngster, so 16, uh, when I was 16. And I left when I was 29, I think. Yeah, 29. That's a, a long time. I left from Goodness, Coventry. I mean, that's Coventry. a long career in any sport, isn't it? It is. And I think at the time when I retired at 30, because um, I, I, I spent my most of my joy to my rugby there, then I moved to Gloucester down the road uh, to play for Leicester's Enemy, uh, which I had a, an amazing time down there just for one year. But at 30, I felt like I was old. Because in the rugby world, you were relatively old. But the fact I started at such a young age uh, and I had a lot of miles on the clock, it was just a great it's just a great experience, a great part of my life that shaped who I am today. Well, listen, tell me about rugby. I mean, I don't really know the ins and outs of rugby. What is that journey like? I mean, you know, as a sport, it's a really tough sport and you must take some knocks along the way. How does that affect your psyche, your psychology, your thinking? How is it that, what makes a good team? I mean, Leicester Tigers, very successful team. England, England rugby team, very successful team. What are the, what are the, what is your journey? What's your experience in terms of what makes a good team sporting wise? And what's your experience as a player as well? I mentioned I'd grow up in Coventry. So I'm a Coventry lad, never played. No one blamed my family played rugby. You know, my dream was to play football like most young men. Uh, young boys at the time was just to play football, play, play, kick around in the park and everything else. And my school just happened not to play football. It had to. It just happened to play rugby. So I was sort of forced down the rugby path. Uh, and like we just said then, my knowledge of it, I had zero knowledge. Uh, I looked at it on TV and thought, I don't want to do that. Like there's people there who are big and you know heavy and fast and people get stood on and people go off with stitches and all sorts of, there's lots of injuries. So for me, it wasn't. I wasn't drawn towards that side of it. Um, I, was, I was a relatively quick runner at school. Uh, I got in myself into the odd pickle. Uh, I was quite an, uh, um, what's, what's the word? I had lots of energy, let's say, lots of energy as, as a young, young man. Mm-hmm. And rugby gave me an outlet <laughs> to be able to get rid of uh, that energy and convert that energy into something which I ultimately turned into a career. But if we go all then, back then when I started playing, rugby wasn't a career. You know, it was just that it wasn't professional. 
So people who played back then when I watched it on TV, when I started playing at the age of 13, they had jobs. They worked in the city predominantly. It was a middle-class uh, background. So people were bankers or lawyers or traders working in the city and played rugby on the side uh, as, a, as, a, as a hobby, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I signed pro. I picked up my first rugby ball at 13, so a late starter. And then I signed pro at 16 for Leicester Tigers, just as the game turned pro. So my journey into it, the timing was right. Like in sport, timing is everything. And in life, timing is everything. And I think that opportunity, the doors opened for me at that time to move from Leicester to, um, sorry, to move from Coventry to Leicester at a time. I'd just played for England schoolboys, uh, England under 16s. And I got selected from there to go and have a trial uh, over at the Tigers with uh, all the people that I've seen on TV. So it was quite a, it's quite a very sharp, uh, learning curve for me. I mean, that must have been awesome, you know, walking in into that changing room that first day and you suddenly see all these heroes in front of you. Uh, as an individual, I remember what it was like for me, you know, as a 16-year-old police cadet and I'd always dreamt of being in a police uh, and I suddenly walked into my first parade room seeing all these really experienced police officers. They weren't famous. But so you had the you had the double disadvantage or like or the double challenge of having really experienced people in front of you who you've got a previous self to, but also these were, these were heroes. How did that feel for you? I can remember it quite clearly, actually, because I walked in, I saw the likes of Dean Richards, um, Martin Johnson, Rory Underwood, Tony Underwood. You know, I was very lucky because yeah. I came from, from Coventry across. Neil Back, who's a rugby superstar, you know, he's very, very influential in my career. He used to drive me across with a, a friend of ours, a, a chap called Pete Lloyd, uh, also linked to Barker's Butts, my club in Coventry. Neil used to play for Butts as well. And he used to drive us over to training on a Tuesday and a Thursday. So just by being in that car journey up the M69 from Coventry to, to Leicester, I used to sit there and, and Neil didn't really know me. There's a, an age gap between us. And I was this young kid uh, who he, I was probably forced upon him. Uh, but I used to just listen to how he spoke, his approach to life, to rugby, to everything really, how professional he was. And I was like a sponge. I didn't really speak. I just listened and then... His friends were mm. Martin Johnson, likes of Matt Paul, Darren Garforth, Graham Rountree, these people, superstars who you see on TV. Uh, and all of a sudden, because they were his friends and I was latched onto him, uh, I was this kid who was latched on, following him around. They, were, they, they quickly became my friends and I learned around their behaviours. You know, I'm a big believer of your product of your environment. And I was thrust into that environment very fortunately and I picked up lots of traits from those people then who were... They weren't superstars back then, but they went on to be, you know, win World Cups and lot European Cups and, yeah. you know, all these different things. So I think I was fortunate to have been around them. But the changing room thing for me, yes, it was daunting, especially at that time going in. I remember I was 17 when I got my first chance to play in the first team. And it wasn't one of those ones where you, you've been selected on the Tuesday and you've got the, the build-up to the week and you've got a full week to be nervous about it and think about all the things that might go wrong. I was literally, it was a, it was a friendly game and someone got injured. I think Rory Underwood got injured and they didn't have someone to, it was an amateur era at the time. So um, I walked out, I was the right place at the right time. And the boss then, the director of was a chap called Tony um, Tony Russ. And I was, with, I was with Neil Back about to go over and watch them play. And he said, we're, we're a man down. Uh, we need someone to play. Uh, and I was and Back, he was like, Leon's got his boots, he'll play. So literally, it was like that. And I'd just finished wow. the training session. I'd just finished the training <laughs> session with the youth team, so the under-19s. And I'm there and I didn't even speak. And I don't, I'm not too sure if Tony knew my name. And he's like, have you got your boots? I was like, yeah. He went, right, bring them, we'll see you there. So I went across to rugby to play against Rugby Lions. 
And I walked in the change room. No one knew who I was. <laughs> I just sat in the corner. And I, I remember, because I don't even think there was a space for me on all the benches. So I didn't have a space for my bag. So I just put my bag on the floor. Didn't speak. Got changed in the corner. I think Backy <laughs> must have introduced me to the wider squad. Uh, and I, yeah, I played that game uh, under floodlights at Rugby Lions. The young 17-year-old managed to... I remember in the first few minutes, there's a chap called Stuart Potter who ran through the middle and somebody tried to tackle him. And that person just got knocked out instantly because you know, the power. And I thought to myself, I thought, oh my goodness, this is the big league. And I was a skinny, a tall, skinny kid. Yeah. And I, right away, I'm thinking, now, what do I do? And I managed to score early on in the game and that settled my nerves. And from that moment, it, 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 I sort of accepted uh, and I got more opportunities. Leon, I can't even begin to imagine what that felt like. I mean, I remember when I was 17 years old, I think I was probably nine stone wet through uh, and to be playing with these big, tough fellas, and also to displace Rory Underwood, for goodness sakes. I mean, you've got to have written that in your book somewhere, you know, <laughs> to, to have made, you know, made your mark, you made your debut in the big scene, and you're actually displacing a national hero. <laughs> that must have been such a bizarre experience. That, that, bring, that brings its own challenges, right? Because uh, Rory was, was a hero, not just a hero to me, and a hero to Leicester Tigers, but also an English hero and a British Lion. So, you know, a few years later, I think later that year or the next season, when we had a new coach come in, and I got selected ahead of Rory. It's like like anything in sport; it happens to us all. We want to play forever, and at some point, somebody yeah. says your time's up, and somebody else is coming through. Uh, and that, for me, fortunately for me, uh, that that came in for me to get selected. Uh, but also, I've been on the receiving end where a younger version has come through, and someone taps you on the shoulder and says. Mm. We've got somebody else who's coming through as well. Uh, so then you move on. But for me to replace the the legendary Rory Underwood, it was it was daunting because there were massive boots to fill. Uh, and as I say, he was a, mm. a hero of mine and of Leicester Tigers. I think the, the season where I got in the team, they'd just opened the Underwood Suite restaurant in the ground. So I'm sure the supporters are looking around thinking, who's this little skinny kid playing on the wall? Bring Rory back. Bring, I might, I might <laughs> have never had a chance. Bring Rory back when I was playing. But, uh, but thankfully I managed to... Um, settling quite quickly. But, you know, there's a, there's so much wisdom in what you've just talked about because I think you could move that into any industry and it still works, you know. There is a time, we're all on this conveyor belt, aren't we? And there is a time for us to move over to let other people in. I remember when I was retiring, you know, a lot of people respond with emotion, don't they? They don't want you to go or they don't want that person to leave, etc. But this is just emotion. It's not rational. Uh, and, and I remember a few people saying to me, you know, we don't want you to go. And I think, well, look, you know, I've done 32 years. It's time for me to move on. And there's a, a really powerful poem that I once read called The Indispensable Man. And it talks about, and I, I have to paraphrase it, but it says, you know, if I if I was a bucket of water and you took your hand and you put my your hand in the bucket of water, no matter how much you swish around, when you take your hand out, there is no gap. Uh, and that's why nobody is indispensable. And I thought that was a really, really powerful poem. Uh, but actually, it's it's really good wisdom for life, really. And I always say, you know, one of our fundamental responsibilities as leaders is always to be preparing future leaders. That's a fundamental responsibility. So, you know, the investment that um, all of these people had in you, the coach who put you off, the, pulled you off the bench and put you into Rory's place and you know, Neil uh, and and the whoever was behind you, introducing you to people, recommending you. All of these people were preparing you as a future leader, and then, of course, you went on and did that for other uh, individuals. So, if you were to 
you know, highlight a few things that you learned from a leadership perspective from all those years of playing rugby, what what would they be for you? I, I, th- I think I'd be lying if I said I was preparing myself. You know, succession planning is so important and you're absolutely right. I think I learned that when I finished yeah. playing rugby because I was so focused on this is my shirt, this is my team, I want to contribute to the team. I didn't want anybody to take my shirt. Uh, and yeah. soon as somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, oh, you might be losing a grasp of that shirt now. You train hard and you push yourself for, for the for the you know for the barriers to try and hold on to it a little bit longer. But as you say, ultimately, you're just custodian of that shirt. You're just holding it on until somebody else comes along and takes it off you. And I suppose that's what makes it hard to make that decision to to move on or to retire. And if that's your decision, when that yeah. decision is made for you, it's slightly easier. Uh, but I suppose being reflective, uh, a level of self awareness when you look back on those things and those even on selection, even on you know, I've been very fortunate to have played in, you know, European Cup finals. Um, but I've also been left out of European Cup finals as well. And at the time, that that's the yeah. worst day of your life. You're thinking, what? The coach has got it wrong. You know, what, what is he doing? What is he not seeing? And then afterwards, when you take yourself out of that and you remove emotion, it's hard to do that at the time. So reflecting in action is quite hard to do, especially when it's such an emotive thing around selection, the biggest game in the, you know, the club's history and, of millions of people on TV, all you want to do as a an athlete, as a rugby player, is be in those moments. But having the ability to mm-hmm. hold back that frustration, you know, those emotions, and then go up to the person who's been selected ahead of you, who is a teammate. Like we're, we're all in a team to get the strength, the power of the team comes from you know the ability to to adapt and to go up to that person to say, congratulations, congratulations on the selection. Anything you need uh, me to do to help you get ready for the game at the weekend. Let me know. Now that that that's hard thing to say, and, yeah. and the only reason I've said that to people is because somebody else has said it to me. So when I've taken the shirt off somebody else, and they've come up to me and said, "Well done, no good luck, um, have a great game. If you need anything, let me know." That must have been really tough for them to say that, and you only realise that when you're on the other end of it. So you sort of like a play it forward moment. So when I've not when I've not been selected, it's horrible, and I, you can't do it straight away. And not everyone could do it, but certainly in that environment I was in at the at Leicester Tigers we had a culture of team first. Uh, and yeah, I may disagree with the coach. Yeah. Even to this day, I may disagree with the coach. But however, decisions made, let's go, what can, what, how can I contribute to make sure the team succeeds? And I think that's one of the lessons uh, I've learned afterwards, retrospectively looking back. You didn't rea- I didn't realise that not everyone does that in the world. That's quite unique, I think, to high-performing, high-achieving environments. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I love the analogy that you've used from the cricketing, from cricketing, from the rugby world uh, and brought that into any organisation and for a high-performing team, uh, you have to have an environment where you can have honest, you know, honest conflict, uh, healthy conflict, where you can disagree, where you can bring different viewpoints and opinions to the boardroom table and you have that debate there and then, but when you walk out, it's that one team or team first approach, organization first approach uh, that everybody is signed up to whatever decision is being made. I mean, there's a really good book around this on uh, by Patrick Lenciani, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And they talk about, you know, if you build, uh, if you build a foundation of trust, then you are a able to have these open, honest debates and, you know, you make that decision, you stand by the decision, then everyone is committed to it and everyone should be able to hold each other to account. So that's essentially what you're describing using the example of rugby. So how has that worked for you since you left rugby? I know the transition that you talked about 
I completely get that because it was exactly the same for me with policing. Even though I'd prepared to leave policing after three decades, you cannot really truly compare yourself for this alien world in which you go into having had so much time in this, almost this this sort of, um, this world in which you're closeted really, you know, it's it's like it's, you're, you're in this sort of macro world, this, you know, this, this, this sort of bubble of a world and then suddenly you're in the big wide world. So I know that's difficult. So what have, what, what's life been like for you after you've left rugby? Again, that transition, that transition phase, that retire, when you retire from something, most people retire, you know, mid sixties, mm. late sixties and retirement's quite final really in sport. And certainly in your experience as well, when you retire from a career or transition. So I've, yeah. I've stopped using the word yeah. retire and using transition or I saw it as um Likewise, likewise. Yeah. Serena Williams is taking it to a new level and she says she's not transitioning from, from tennis. She was evolving into the next version of herself. So I think I might steal that. Oh, uh, I love that. So you're evolving. Yeah, again, I'm having that one. Yeah. I'm having that one. <laughs> but, but, but the language the language that you use and sort of how you position yourself and your identity, my identity was I was always, from the age of 16 to the age of 30, I was Leon the rugby player. That's what I was. That, that was my identity. I was never Leon the son, the husband, the brother, the dad, the charity ambassador, the non-exec director. None of those things. I was a rugby player. So when that, when that stops, I struggled with who I was and trying to find my identity. And it, it took me a long time really to understand about you are more than your job. And whilst I was playing, I suppose that's the benefit of what, why Leicester yes. and England and Gloucester, the teams I played for, get every ounce out of you because you put, you put every ounce into being as good as you can for that role. So there's a, there's a fine line, a balance to, to be made there. But I suppose the, the leadership piece came back from reflecting afterwards, you know, when I had some time, some dark times after I finished playing, because the, the world moves on, right? When you finish, you know, you did, you said you did three decades mm. in the police force and, you know, I played rugby from the age of 16 to 30. When I finished, my body was broken and the team, I remember watching, I, I retired at Gloucester and the team carried on. And for some reason in my head, d- delusional I may have been, I thought, I didn't want the team to lose, but I wanted them to miss me. I wanted them to go, oh, it's not quite the same without Leon. But it, it is, right? So I'm a, I'm a very yeah. small part of a big machine. And it made me think about all my other teammates that had retired before me. And they were just a moment like, oh, good luck, Dave. Good luck with your SU career. We've got a game at the weekend. And you straight away, you're focused on the task at hand. So I had this element of guilt about not really appreciating what other people were going through. because I'm, And I wouldn't be able to because I've never been through it myself. And then all of a sudden, I was contacting all my old teammates mm. who retired before me, apologising that... You know, for, for letting them just fade off into the background, realizing how difficult that can be. So, uh, again, because I, I believe in that you're a product of your environment, I only knew one way of leadership, really, and that's from elite sport. And again, not in an arrogant way, we won lots. Like with Leicester, we won lots of trophies. Uh, so, I thought that is the way to lead. That is the only way to lead because mm-hmm. I've got a, you know, a cabinet full of trophies that suggests that is a you know, way to lead. When I came out and took my first proper job, in the, in the real world. Uh, and I led the same way as I'd been, you know, I've had some amazing uh, managers, director of rugby, captains. I've also had some not so great ones as well, uh, but taking the lessons I've learned from them and instilling that into my style, you know, adapting my style, I realised not everyone works like that you know, in outside, you know, an elite environment is quite unique. Yes. That accountability, that trust that you talk about, you know, that honesty, you know, that, that conflict, that healthy conflict, you can have it happen in a, in a rugby or the sporting environment because you can disagree, but you can still commit to a cause. And you're like, we may disagree, but let's commit to something and move forward. Where well, I found that outside in the real world, that it's far harder to find 
individuals that bought into that because they've not been exposed to that environment. Uh, and you're trying to build those teams around numbers. You need that people to buy into it. So that was a real um, yeah. sharp learning curve for me about how, how do I need to adapt my behavior? Because at first I thought it's not me. It can't be me because I've come from a successful environment. So the issue and the challenges must be them. And you can see straight away where the friction may start to happen. So there's definitely a need for self-awareness from my side to understand how I adapt my behavior. See, um, I, I, I'm, I'm so pleased you've mentioned this because, you know, talking about self-awareness and also talking about something I call the fear of the ego death. Uh, there's a brilliant piece of work done by a guy called Dr. Carl Albrecht, and he talks about the fear arc, and he talks about the five supreme fears that we all have. Uh, and the top fear is the fear of the ego death, where you fear being judged, you fear what other people might think of you. Uh, and I think, you know, so many of us, when we get sucked up into the leadership position that we hold, actually get sucked up into the, the ego that surrounds that p- a position. So then you start worrying about, hey, what are people going to think of me if I make a decision wrong or if I do this? Or So then you try and, you know, you be, you have a tendency to become more autocratic if you're not careful, uh, that you just make these singular decisions that you are happy with because you've done the thinking around it. And consequently, what you don't do, you don't allow other people to contribute or use their professional judgment. I'm interested to to understand why this style of leadership worked in a sporting context or why it doesn't work in a an organizational context. Is it something to do, Leon, with the fact that in the sporting arena, in rugby, for example, you know that the goal is actually quite a simplistic goal. We want to keep winning. We want to win. We want to win the next game, the next game. We want to win this competition. Whereas when it's an organization, you may have a whole lot of KPI, strategic objectives, and it can get a bit blurry if you're not careful. Is it something to do with that or is it something entirely different, do you think? Probably a mixture. I know that I've been had been fortunate to work in this elite performance space, you know, in sport, but also now in the corporate world as well. So I get to go into organizations and work with senior leadership teams and understand and identify Sometimes it can be small little nuances that need tweaking. Uh, and it's understanding the team, that the power of yeah. the team and culture is so, so important. And if you haven't been exposed to it, or if you haven't experienced it, then it could be just mumbo jumbo. Like, even it's things like psychometric profile or behavioural profile, those type of things. I wasn't aware of them when I was playing sport, but I've now come away and gone on this academic journey to, to upskill myself, really. So just trying mm. to be better. How do I become a better person? But also, I definitely got this from sport is, how do I make those people around me better? Because if they're better, you know, I'm going to be better. So it's like a self, it's like, how do I give other people time, knowledge, opportunities that they're better selfishly? Because if they're better, we're all better. And I think that's, um, that, that comes from sport. Yeah. And again, there are simple things that can transfer across into business. But there's definitely, uh, the key things for me, where I think, are, people think there's like gold dust. There's that magic gold dust. Why do elite teams in sport um, succeed? And if there's no gold dust, there isn't, there's, an, there's, a, there's a few key traits. And again, I mentioned before that about the accountability, the trust, not thinking you're bigger than the yeah. team uh, because you don't survive in that environment because it's such fast paced. You've got to have a thick skin to be able to take um, feedback, constructive feedback. And not everyone likes feedback. Uh, but, but also, I suppose that the mechanics of that. So in our team, if I use Leicester Tigers as an example, because we we're talking about that. So in our team, we had a boss who was mm-hmm. Dean Richards, the director of rugby, and in his own right was a you know a legendary player. But he empowered the team to run the team. So he had ultimate say, he's the boss, and there's no doubt about that. Martin Johnson was our captain. Martin Johnson, the best captain, you know, you know, won mm-hmm. a World Cup for England, won the Lions series, he won so many trophies for Leicester. 
an amazing leader. So you might think that, you know, especially if he's like six foot eight, you know, and he's quite an, a, a, you know, a domineering character. You might think that he ruled in an autocratic way where he lives my way or the highway. Absolutely. He didn't do that because within it, within our team, we had six or seven other leaders uh, in our lesser team. And it might be a, you might be a captain of the forwards or the front row or captain of defense. And, and Jono yes. as our captain, really on a match day, I'm not, I'm not being disrespectful to him, but it's probably his biggest thing he had to do is go and flip the coin to see whether we ran out left or ran right, you know, to, at the start of the game, because he had confidence in the rest of the team doing their jobs. So he didn't have to worry about me doing my job or the back three doing theirs or the, you know, the front row doing their yeah. jobs. He, we all were trusted that we knew if we did our jobs, our little units would come together and the little units all feed into the team coming together. And yes, there are times when a decision needs to be made and ultimately that goes to the, the boss. But very rarely, uh, well, not the boss, like the captain, I suppose, but very rarely did that happen. It, all, it, was just, it just came, we were in flow and we practised. We practised hard, purposeful practice, so that when those times come, we sort of knew what needed to happen. But therein lies a really, really powerful leadership lesson that Martin Johnson was displaying at that time in a very quiet kind of way. And that is allowing other people to use their professional judgment, but to create the environment where people feel felt comfortable doing that. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes the mistake that we've I've seen in so many leadership teams in organisations is that um, this diversity of thought isn't really appreciated. So when we think about diversity, we automatically start thinking around protected characteristics, you know, uh, um, race or sex or gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we tend not to think about is the diversity of thought. And I think this is a true diversity because if you get lots of different people coming into your organisation, but they all speak with the same voice, that's not diversity. But if you get lots of people in your organisation all coming from different pathways and and are allowed, you've created the space for them to think in the way that they think, use the expertise that they've got, use the specialisms that they've got and allow them to bring that to the boardroom table that for me is diversity. And I think it's, it's a Martin Johnson understood that and your boardroom table was a pitch. Uh, yeah. So he allowed that diversity of thought and that, that experience that individually people had or little groups within the group had, uh, he allowed that to come to the fore. And I think that's a, actually quite exceptional leadership. I think we involved, evolved into that because when I first got in the team in Leicester, it's a very fixed team and you sort of needed to have played 20 games, 50 games before you're allowed to speak. So you like my, my voice or my opinion wouldn't have counted for anything back then because that's just the the environment where they come through. Then when this next wave of leaders come through, so the Martin Johnson, the Neil Backs, you know, the Austin Healy's, those people who you're right come from different backgrounds, that diversity of thought was key. All of a mm. sudden, a young 17 year old might get asked his opinion and he wouldn't get laughed at. Uh, not necessarily would have taken on board, but he felt like he had a voice in there and occasionally as you prove yourself and people just try things out you have those opportunities i think that's we evolved into that and i think what what a great evolution and i see this evolution happening in so many organizations now but it's with some organizations it's very very slow in other organizations uh, they still operate with you know time served you've got to have worked and proved yourself over a period of time before you even have that voice it was very similar for me in the police service i felt that you know, I couldn't really say anything until at least I'd got five or six years service in. You know, that's when I had a real voice. Um, I'm intrigued by, uh, before we go, I want to talk about your book, Boot Room to Boardroom. I love the title, by the way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and within the book, I'm guessing what you're talking about is the, the similarities in leadership, but also the differences in leadership. So when you do go and work in boardrooms now, what are the key lessons that you, you, you want to leave them with? 
Yeah, I think the the, the premise of uh, Boot Room to Boardroom was around. It's certainly not a book about talking about how good I thought I was. You know, the ultimate highs of you know playing for England and winning trophies and the devastating lows of being dropped and being injured. But it's more about the people that you meet in between. And I was exposed to again some super successful organisations, sponsors, partners, leaders just by being in and around sport. And, and if I had my time again, what would I do differently? So it's more of a take more of a, a lesson really to take advantage of the knowledge that surrounds you. Yes, on the pitch in your job, but also mm. outside that, thinking about you are more than your job. Who can you meet outside those things, outside that, that arena? And I learned, um, I, did a, I did a course in corporate governance, which is not a very sexy course, uh, corporate governance, as, as you can imagine. But it, <laughs> it absolutely opened my eyes and I was able to, I've got lots of practical knowledge and experience from out there living it, playing it, but trying to underpin that with a bit of academic rigour or theory, I didn't have that. It's more based of, why do we do this? Oh, because he said it, we tried it, it worked, so we continue doing it. And then when I went and did some more qualifications, mm-hmm. I did my undergrad and my my MBA, and then chuck in the corporate governance piece, I realised I'd been trained. It's like a course. The, my rugby career was like a programme, uh, and I was getting these lessons all the mm. time, all the way through, without realising. You don't get a certificate at the end of it, uh, but all those experiences, and also in a high-performance, very visible arena, you, know, you make a mistake in front of millions of people on TV. It's a mistake that people see. Uh, and write about you know social media you, you, you have to stand up and, and be accountable to those mistakes own the mistakes so i think you it's a great platform to develop uh, future leaders in other areas not just in sport and at the time when you're playing you just think i'm a rugby player i'm a football player i'm a swimmer whatever you might be you don't realize that those mm-hmm. attributes can absolutely be transferred across into other, other areas of the sector so i suppose now when i'm talking to individuals when i go to teams Again, it's not rocket science. I just explain my experience. I don't try and pretend I know what they've gone through. I explain my experiences, the highs. Largely, people learn from the lows and the things where they, when you've got it wrong. Uh, unfortunately, we learn from those things, so you've got to make a few mistakes. My mantra is sweet and sour. To fully appreciate the sweet, you have to have tasted the sour. Otherwise, you know you, you don't get to learn, you get it to grow and don't get to develop. Uh, so learning and shining a light on where we've mm-hmm. failed uh, and learning from other people's mistakes. I'm a big fan of learning from other people's mistakes. Uh, that's where we, sh- we shine a light on that and how do we can we learn from those that have been before us so that the, the next generation or what we're doing at the moment can benefit from that. Wonderful wisdom to leave everybody with. Um, you know, just picking up on some of the snippets there, I love that you talk about transitioning, Leon, because I think if ever you are in an, in a, in a, in a, in a, an employment, in a job, in an occupation or a vocation, call it what you want, that is so driven by passion, whether it's rugby or whether it's policing or whether it's public sector, or, you know, whether it's football, there comes a point in time where you have to move on and you have to go and find something else. Uh, and that is the issue around transitioning. I love the fact that, uh, you know, you, you, I share your views when you talk about retirement. I don't, use the word retirement because I was young enough to go and live a new life. I love the whole evolution uh, description around that, by the way. And I think some of the wisdom that you've shared there around always be looking beyond what you're doing right now, learn new skills, have new conversations, be much more aware of what's going on outside of your own bubble. And, uh, and these experiences are transferable outside of whatever you're doing now into your next leadership role. And you've proved that yourself 
uh, quite fantastically. Leon, I want to say thank you so much. I can't believe it's uh, the time has just flown by. I could carry on talking to you for another half an hour, to be quite honest. Uh, but I want to thank you for being on our show today. And uh, hopefully we can get you back on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.